Welcome to the Keto Endurance Podcast. Today's podcast is with Tyler Cartwright from Keto Gains. I wanted to let the listeners know about some sounds in the background. You may hear my dogs uh, wrestling. They do that often, and that is in the background when I'm talking with Tyler. Additionally, Tyler, his headset was cutting in and out, so there are some rough areas where it cuts out, and I apologize. I hope the information is useful to you. Thank you, and on to the show. Welcome, everybody, to the Keto Endurance Podcast. I have a special guest today. I have Tyler Cartwright from Keto Gains. If you're not familiar with Keto Gains, they are a sort of the strength training counterpart to what I do, which is endurance coaching. And I signed up for their program, I guess probably two years ago or maybe a year and a half ago, because I just wanted to see what it was all about. And I thought it was absolutely fabulous. And I love their success stories. And I just met Tyler and the Keto Grains crew at Low Carb USA. Tyler and the Keto Gains crew are just as cool in person as they are online. So welcome, Tyler. Can you hear me? Thank you. I'm not sure if that's a compliment or it is. Yeah, I can hear you. Can you hear me okay? Just as cool in person? Yeah. Yeah, Well, you said just as cool in person as they are online, and I don't know if that means we're dull both places or if it means we're cool both places. I think uh... you're cool both places. (laughs) I love your comments. If you are not a member of the Keto Gains group, I think that it might be a good thing to join. Because of, well, the success stories and the pictures whenever they have Flex Friday and everything are pretty awesome. But the second thing, I like how you keep it real. Like you, when people say, oh, here's my before and after. I've lost 40 pounds, but I don't look as good as so-and-so. And you're like, come on now. Let's not, let's stop the self-deprecation, which I am 100% on the same page with. You know, everybody's success, we're all on our own journey, and I think, that we should celebrate our successes together. And whether you have uh, lost 10 or 100 pounds or, you know, you have six-pack gaps or not, but if you're making progress, it's all good. I would agree. You know, I think one of the biggest challenges that people have is it's this idea that they have to compare their success to somebody else's. And the truth of the matter is I've met a lot of people whose physiques I would love to have. And as I've gotten to know them, I've realized that they're truly, truly broken individuals because the choices that they've made to have the results that they've had have left just a wake of destruction in their past. I've met some great physiques that are perfectly wonderful human beings that are in no way really flawed. You know, you can't place yourself into somebody else's, into somebody else's journey. I think you hit the nail on the head stuff. And it's, it's, it's just one of those things that's become a pet peeve of mine is when somebody says, Oh, I've still got a long way to go. Well, true, but that's really just an effort at discounting how far you've come. Or, you know, they'll say things like, well, I'm not as, as successful as some of the rest of you. Well, you know, I've been at this 11 years in Luis for almost 20, for example. And so it's really hard to say, hey, great, you've been at this for 11 days or 11 weeks. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, I joke sometimes people get really enamored with me having lost almost 300 pounds until they do the math and realize that was about a half a pound a week. I invented new ways to screw this up along the path. So, uh, you know, so, so it's definitely it's just one of those things where, you know, there's the older cliche or the expression, 
comparisons the thief of joy, but I think it's also the killer of dreams. You know, it, it, it's one of those things that, that we use to diminish our successes to try and drive us back to the place that we used to be because there's comfortability and there's, there's safety in sameness and routine and doing something new is definitely challenging and scary and has the risk of epic and catastrophic failure. So it's, it's a, it's an irksome point of mine. And if you've been in the keto gains group for very long, you'll have seen me take issue with somebody saying it from time to time. I try and be nice about it. And I genuinely mean it from a place of love and concern because I've watched it just derail people before, but at the same time, yeah, it, it makes me cringe a little. We're all in the process of learning something or doing something new. There's no utopia. And like you said, I know some elite endurance athletes who have perfect bodies and they're not happy people and some people body, but I don't have asthma anymore. And I'm about 30 pounds lighter than I used to be. So I count those as wins and plus... I've gotten sure. a heck of a lot faster. So I can really... <laughs> so Being able is, to breathe will do that for you, right? I mean, imagine really. that. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And my uh, drug copay used to be $80 a month for all the medication I was on. And now mm. I'm on none, which is fabulous. Let's talk a little bit about how you got started with... Ke how Keto Gains got started so that's a, a bit of a long and sordid tale, but I'll do my very best here. So, um, so Luis is, has been, uh, Luis Villasenor, for those that don't know, ha, you know, was, was sort of the founder of Keto Gains as a movement, if you will, um, was actually one of the administrative Reddit, subreddit, Keto. And a lot of his recommendations were along the lines of bodybuilding, strength training, helping people who kind of wanted to do a little more than the average bear. Not that endurance athletes would know anything about wanting to do more than other people. Like that's totally not a thing in the endurance <laughs> sport world, right? I joke sometimes, or I kind of use this expression sometimes that, that everybody has their own good enough. And People, their natural good enough is not good enough. And it's for those people that, you know, at least really kind of resonated, his message sort of resonated. And it was for people like me. I come from a sport, you know, powerlifting and, and football background, uh, you know, from with respect to strength training and, and athletic prowess. Um, although I will point out that my only claim to, uh, to endurance fame is that I basically like broke the bank um, at one of these bike for charity things when I was in elementary school, but that's the last time I ever competed in anything uh, <laughs> that involved a bicycle or running or swimming. Um, but, uh, you know, but, but it's, it's funny. He and I, of all the weird things to connect over, we're both pop culture junkies and children of the eighties. And so random G.I. Joe references or He-Man references or obnoxious, stupid movie quotes and both tend to be like Monty Python fans and so offhanded Monty Python comments here and there and, you know, in Reddit or in, in the Facebook group. Um, actually, we just started chatting privately, you know, like Facebook instant message and, and Reddit's messaging function. And uh, it was just that you know we, we just realized how 
similarly, we tended to think philosophically about things, right? There was sort of this stoic intentionality with regard to how we tended to approach diet and exercise. It's, you're not going to want to do it every day, do it anyway. You're not going to want to make, you know, proper food decisions every day, do them anyway. You're going to want McDonald's. The the question is not whether you want McDonald's because the answer is for most people, yeah, I kind of always want to go bury my head under the blizzard machine at Dairy Queen, but the that's really <laughs> not relevant. The question is, does this align with my goals and the things that are kind of part of my bigger existential why? And as we started talking more and more and more, we just kind of realized that this is something that a lot of people needed to hear, that the question isn't, can I, but the question is, should I, with respect to diet and, and quite frankly, with respect to exercise also. When you start working with, with athletes and you start moving through periods of, of training and you go through heavy cycles and light cycles and those sorts of things, you have to ask those questions of yourself as an athlete. And then with respect to being a coach of those athletes is sure. I can, I can push them harder and faster, but am I going to break them in the process of doing so? Or am I actually going to make them better? You know, am I getting them ready for race day or am I just being a, a sadistic jerk? Um, you know, and, and there is a fine line that exists there is, you know, with respect to being a coach. And so, you know, as we started doing, more recommending training protocols and making some corrections and edits to things that we saw in popular protocols like ice cream fitness and strong lifts and some other things, people started asking us to coach them or to, or to work with them. And honestly, it was one of these things that sort of grew organically and unintentionally, which sometimes I think are the most beautiful and wonderful and weird things or the things that you never really kind of law of unintended consequences, right? You never really set out to go do something as a commercial venture. It just became so many people asking that you either had to like divorce your family and move into like a Wi-Fi hotel somewhere in you know, a well-connected building, or you had to start you know, doing this as, as an actual job, which was, uh, it's a weird transition, but that's, that's really kind of the backstory as it came out of Reddit's keto. And basically I think the admins there at the time kind of said, Hey, Luis, if you're going to offer those suggestions, maybe you kind of ought to start thinking about doing it in your own group. <laughs> and, you know, it was, it was the most amicable divorce ever because he's still an administrator or moderator there as am I. And we're both still administrators, administrators and moderators, obviously, as well as co-founders of the Keto Gains brand within the Keto Gains subreddit. But it was kind of like, hey, making recommendations for, you know, for protein intakes and weighing and measuring everything and you're making it too hard was kind of the message. But the, the truth of the matter is, you know, sometimes people don't have, you know, to use my analogy from earlier, sometimes people don't they're good enough, they can never get to naturally. And that's where I really, my heart breaks for people is when their genetics and their epigenetics, their lifestyle factors, you know, the, the, the life that they've lived up until now and the damage that they've done to their bodies won't let them get to the point where good enough without making these sorts of hard decisions and intentional behaviors and that's where, you know, I think sometimes there's a, a bit of a hard edge to us that I, I'm not sure is really warranted, um, you know, kind of as a perception, but there is just kind of that stoic, this is true. For many, well, many I agree. 
a lot of people in the keto community are like, well, the great thing about keto is you don't have to weigh and measure, but I still, if I want to make gain, you know, progression and, and goals, I still have to weigh and measure because my natural picking mechanism, even when I went zero carb is still not, um, those leptin and ghrelin signals and are not always there. And lifestyle factors also make, you know, play into it. But I agree. Well, it's just a, it, it's a huge. You're cutting out. To get I, over because they've been sold that keto mean. I'm sorry. Can, oh, any better now? Yeah, that's better. Okay. I will try not to move. Um, <laughs> if I continue to cut out, just let me know and I'll take this off a headset and see if that helps. Um, but uh, you know, one of the, the challenges that I see with people is they get convinced that keto means exactly what you said, Stephanie. It means that I never have to weigh, I never have to track, I never have to be intentional. I can eat intuitively. And for an individual whose piety signaling is still completely present and built in properly and you know, people who don't eat because of behavioral dysregulation or mental health conditions as a coping mechanism for like anxiety or depression or something along those lines, that's probably true. But physiologic hunger and cravings are not the only reasons that we eat. And so this idea and, and having grown up basically my entire adult life with anxiety and depression issues that I've dealt with at times through medication and now I manage mostly through diet, um, it's interesting because I go, I've, I've said this before a number of different times, but I, I go through life sort of always, meh, I could eat. And it's really, and I've realized it's more of a, a defense mechanism to put food between myself and someone else than it is actual hunger. So I know what it is, but that doesn't change the fact that I interpret that signal as I want to eat a pizza. And so telling somebody like me to eat intuitively, I actually tried it for two weeks just to see what would happen. Um, I actually had someone else to weigh the food that I was eating and measure it just to see what would happen. Um, and uh, we were at about 7,200 calories a day is still my default satiety. And it was really more to do with stomach volume and my jaw hurting than it was to do with the fact that I was not still willing to eat Oh my. Well, I don't know that I would be that high, but I know that my signals are not right. Like I could eat, um, and I, not that I've suffered from depression, but I definitely have no mechanism. No, this is my gym look. <laughs> so we won't see us on the video. <laughs> so for those of you that don't know, we're on video right now. You won't see it. But <laughs> literally, I just came from jujitsu and I look like a sweaty monster and stuff. And he just came from the gym and her hair was wispy and windblown. Yeah, yeah. Because I go to the gym and I don't care what I look like. I have my headphones on and, and not paying attention yeah, sure. to the world. But the, um, yeah, I agree that there's a lot of reasons why people overeat and it, Hunger is just one of them. I have a friend who runs an addiction treatment center in outside of Sedona, and they treat people for all kinds of addictions. You could be addicted to gambling. You could be addicted to you know, heroin. You could be addicted to opiates. But you can also be addicted to food or even addicted to emotions. Like sure. some people get addicted to certain states. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Well, I mean, for example, we call them adrenaline junkies and there's a reason they're adrenaline junkies. They're chasing a, an emotive high. Um, you know, and I do think that probably the prevalence, and I'm always careful when I use the word addiction around food, because I think that the best definitions I've seen of addiction indicate that people make decisions that are counterproductive to their health or to the livelihoods or wealth of other people. So the idea is that they'll steal from others, hurt others for the sake of, of benefiting themselves. And I don't know that I've ever done that for barbecue um, <laughs> or pizza or any other food. So I'm not sure that it rises at least to the sort of what I understand in and in an, I'm not a clinician clinical sort of a way of understanding that term but there are compulsions that we have to eat that don't stem from actual hunger. And I think that those are very much the same kind of compulsions that we have for things like gambling, for things like alcohol, right? Um, and there's a reason I have a friend that refers to booze as social lubricant, right? You know, you, you want to get people talking and having a good time, get them liquored up. Well, the reason is all of those inhibitions and all of those anxieties and discomforts they have around being commingled as people, they sort of go away. Yeah. Right. You know, every, everybody seems to be 10 feet tall and bulletproof. And, and there is probably a lot more in common with the use of alcohol as a social lubricant um, that we have with respect to food. The challenge with food is that you can't go abstinent. I mean, unless you're on a medically supervised fast, you literally can't just say, I'm never going to eat anymore and become like a breatharian who drinks, you know, ambient humid air for water and whatever else. So yeah. you have to eat. And so we have to learn strategies and coping mechanisms and we have to learn to be able to call things what they are. But I think a lot of it gets back to just eating good, relatively unprocessed whole foods, making wise and intentional choices with our diet and learning proper portioning, right? You know, I mean, even if you only weighed and measured maybe one week out of the month, if you just continually reset your brain that this is what six ounces of meat looks like, or this is what one half cup or one cup of vegetables looks like, or this is what a half a cup of berries or a quarter cup of berries looks like on a plate, it just continually keeps you from getting sort of that caloric drift that happens to almost everybody who's wired Oh, you're cutting out again. <laughs> it sounds. I'm sorry. <laughs> That's all right. We are we are in the middle of a construction zone in my neighborhood right now, so the internet is a little right. suspect at times. If, and if, I apologize. That's fine. Just don't. I think when you lean your head back is when it cuts out. So don't lean. Okay. Back. <laughs> so, but it does sound better with your head. Perfectly still. Okay. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about protein. I don't know about your clients, but me personally, I struggle, well before, I don't anymore. I used to struggle with eating enough protein because if that was an area that um, I would skimp, it was, it was easily protein. And now that I don't skip on protein, I think that I see a huge difference of how well I feel. And I think it was a big problem for me, especially when I was initially starting keto. I had some benefits, but I wasn't really, I didn't have the performance gains that I would have liked initially. So the body actually has a protective mechanism in that it can store body fat. I mean, 
some people are heavier than they want to be know that I think more so than others. Um, and as a guy who used to weigh 500 pounds, I think, uh, I know that as well as just about anyone, we can store a lot of body fat as stored energy. Um, in the same way, the body can store a not unsubstantial or insubstantial amount of carbohydrate, um, just in the form of liver glycogen and muscle glycogen. Is it enough to get through the whole day and whatever? No, but the body has processes like the Cori cycle and gluconeogenesis to actually create glucose to offset some of those losses. The body does not have the ability to produce nitrogenous substances. It doesn't have the ability to generate amino acids out of nothing or out of some other non-amino acid substance like it does glucose. So one of the challenges that we have is that there is a huge importance that needs to be placed on the sufficiency of protein intake in people's diets. Um, in fact, the, you know, the, the root of the word protein actually means of first importance. If you go and you actually research the, the, the root words, the root meanings. Um, so even our ancient ancestors understood that without protein, we struggle and we suffer. And so it's hugely important to understand that. Um, with regard to protein intake in general, um, our recommendations probably err on the side of caution. So we generally recommend around for most people who are not doing heavy resistance training, somewhere around 0.8 grams per pound of lean body mass. So on an individual that's, you know, roughly 20% body fat, that's going to work out to quick math of about a gram per pound, right? So, I mean, it's not a, an egregious amount of protein and, and, you know, it's interesting sometimes that, that I did the math once and for an average weight individual, I think our recommendations are like six grams higher than Finney and Volek's original recommendations in the art and science of low carbohydrate living. And now what we do has been rebranded by some individuals in the community. And I don't really know why as high protein. And I scratch my head and go, there's no, uh, non-pejorative reason that you would label what we recommend as high protein. You can compare something like what Jose Antonio at the ISSN has done um, and look at some of his studies that I think go up to like 8.8 .8 grams per kilogram. I know yeah. there was one that did 4.4 grams per kilogram. There are some big protein numbers and studies out there. And the dirty little secret is those people actually had some modicum of performance improvement and body composition change. I'm not advocating for eating protein that high. I think it's stupidly expensive and probably completely unnecessary. But where I get a little concerned is when we start making blanketed statements for people. You know, I, I find that more often than not, when we start making, you know, uh, when we start speaking of theories as if they're laws, we are a base of settled science, and I'm not really sure that that's wise. Um, so an example of that might be a situation where I say to somebody, hey, what's your protein intake? And they'll say, oh, well, I'm eating a gram per pound of, of body weight. And I'll go, okay, you know, you're a reasonably sized individual. You're not someone who is very large or someone who's very small. That's pretty reasonable. Um, and then I get into a little bit more of their health information and find out that they've dealt with gastroparesis. And oh, by the way, they're a weight loss surgery patient who had duodenal switch because they used to be substantially obese and 
they've now got an absorption rate of about 40% of the average adult individual. And so now it starts to make sense when they have hair that's falling out and brittle nails and skin conditions and all sorts of issues associated with poor protein intake or poor protein quality. It has to do with the fact that they have conditions or circumstances that are, that are effectively clinical in nature but now all they've heard from the keto community is there's one blanket answer and it is this, you know, never should your protein exceed your fat or, um, you know, I've seen a number of these kind of trope dogmatic statements and I get really bothered when I see dogma around something as variable as protein intake. If somebody is resistance training, that person probably needs a minimum of around 0.7 or 0.75 grams per pound of body weight if they are not on either extreme, either extremely underweight or extremely overweight. Um, we tend to use lean body mass just because it's a fat mass is not hugely metabolically needy. It doesn't really drive metabolism. It doesn't really require much in the way of protein to do anything. So it's almost a throwaway. Um, and so sometimes I think people look at our numbers and they don't realize we're talking about lean mass. And then they'll go, well, I've got a 400 pound patient or client and that individual then would need, uh, you know, uh, you know, 0.8 times 400 grams a day of protein. Well, that's crazy. That's a huge amount of protein. Well, you're not going to hurt that person unless they've got kidney damage from doing this. And even then it probably wouldn't hurt them it just seems like when we're talking about 10 or 15 or 20 grams of protein, there, there really should not be such a division in the ketogenic community over something as inconsequential. And when I see somebody kind of dabbling into Shakespearean sort of me thinks the woman doth protest too much sort of ideological sort of rhetoric or banter, I find myself just wondering, is it really about the protein or is there an existential or philosophical issue or some jealousy or something else that's really at the root of it? And I don't know, but either way, that's kind of the numbers that science supports, especially if somebody's trying to do it, you know, any reasonable distance endurance training, any resistance training related to, you know, to weight training or high intensity intervals or something along those lines the risk of eating too much protein pales in comparison to the consequences and risks of under consuming protein. And so if we're going to play devil's advocate here, let's look at both sides of the coin and realize that it, even though it's a bit more expensive to have a little more steak or a little more chicken or a little more fish, the potential risk versus the blessings that it could confer to you definitely tilt in the direction of eat the freaking fish, you know, yeah. eat the chicken. We do, uh, well, I recommend 0.8 to 1.3 grams per pound of lean mass. Sure. So that's just sort of the range. So it's not off. I was having a discussion with Peter Defty, which I think you know Peter. I know Peter well, yes, absolutely. So, he actually spoke at one of our conferences one time, yeah. yeah. So he was, uh, we were having a discussion, and for me, 0.8 to 1.3 seems like a lot. And for Peter, he's like, that's, it's a moderate, and I said, well, this is the exact number, you know, 0.8. And he had the exact same number. We were in the same 0.8 to 1.3 is what he has seen with his clients. And that's what I use with my clients. 
but he thinks that's a low amount of protein and I think it's a lot. So I think, and it's by lean mass. So I think that some of the confusion is, you know, for one, people lean mass compared to whole body weight and two is that the definition of moderate protein or low protein or high protein is sort of a fuzzy number. Yeah, anytime you use words like low, high, or moderate, anytime you use a number that is relative in nature, you have to have a common definition to anchor it to. And that's part of the problem. Um, you have to have a common vernacular. Um, there's a really good religious example of this, but I won't go down that path. Um, but you know, when you, you have two people who are using semantics or terms like it's high or it's low, you have to say relative to what? Right. Yeah, somebody yeah. cannot give you a, a numerical value in saying this is our mean, this is the zero point. You really can't do any assessment of whether something is inherently high or low because it's always high or low relative to it's, you know, I may eat high protein relative to the amount that Stephanie eats on a regular basis, but our body compositions are probably somewhat different just in terms of my overall need for protein because I'm a bigger guy and it's unfair to start categorizing or, or um, speaking about things in relative terms because this isn't high school superlatives. This is not, you know, second most likely to succeed, right? I mean, we have to speak about things within clinical ranges and values because if we don't, we may be arguing while saying the same thing. To your point about you and Peter, you had the same numbers and the same math, but one of you came at it from a perspective of it being high and the other came at it from the lens of it being you know, low or moderate. And so you're ready to bust heads, but it's really not about the absolute on the number. You're just disagreeing on whether we should brand it with, you know, a, 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 you know, this ranch's brand on the back of the cow or that ranch's brand on the back right. of the cow. And at the end of the day, yeah, I find myself just going, um, uh, you know, well, I will go a little scriptural. It says, you know, wisdom is, is defined by her children. And there is a certain amount of what are the results that you're getting eating this way? Are the results that you're getting the results that you want? And if the answer is yes, have the steak, enjoy the chicken, do the thing. If they're not, then you need to go find people who are having the results that you want. And you need to ask yourself, what are these people doing that I'm not doing? And learn, you know, sit at the feet of those people and soak up all of the information that they'll give you. Um, you know, and it's interesting, there is, and the paleo community was guilty of it too. There's a lot of siloistic sort of behavior that exists within the keto community where, um, you know, I follow this person and I follow that person and you just can't hear anything that somebody else is saying because it runs antithetical to what you've been taught. But the question always is, are the people in my circle getting the results that I want? And if they are, then what are they doing that I'm not? And if they're not, I need to find a new circle. I mean, it's, it's really as, as a little, it's probably a little blunt to say it that way, but it is true, right? Um, you know, and there's some, actually some social science to back that up, that you will conform to the behavioral lifestyle of the five to seven people that you spend the most time with, full stop. I mean, in almost every instance where they've studied this, people will gravitate towards the mean 
of the laziest individual that they're around. That's, that's probably the, the gentlest way to put it. Well, I'm thrilled to say that I have very high performing friends. <laughs> so. <laughs> there you go. The, uh, so that's a good thing. I think that um, something too, so let's go on from protein and let's go on to keto, the term keto. And I liked your definition at the conference because it's pretty much my definition. It's not an exact producing ketones or you're getting results. Sure. And for me, I mean, the way I structure training is obviously different because we're working on you know endurance sports and keto is the foundation, but we still practice nutrient timing depending on the event, the sport and people's goals. So there's a lot of variables. But as long as people are either one, a um, they're getting their results, and two, right. oh my God. <laughs> the uh, that they, if they're concerned about it, they can measure their ketones. But that's not really. It doesn't matter what your ketones say. Is are you getting the results you want? So the reality is this: at any point in time you will be exactly as ketogenic as you need to be to not die. I mean, we have to remember that the way that we eat with respect to keto is a starvation mimetic diet by definition. It mimics the hormonal profile of starvation. And it's kind of a biohack in and of itself, which is why I think kind of that biohacker community has been so quick to latch onto this idea because it does seem to drive some hyper-efficiencies with regard to like mitochondrial bio, you know, biodiversity or biogenesis. Um, but I get a little, again, it comes back to that. You'll hear me if, if you spend any time with me and Stephanie, you know, you, you heard me rail about it, you know, because Doug was crazy enough to hand me a microphone is, uh, yeah, we talk about context all the time, right? You know, context, context, context. Um, I like this definition. It's something that I kicked around and came up with about three and a half or four years ago for a conference that we did in, outside of Atlanta. Um, and the definition that I use for a ketogenic diet is any diet that's sufficiently low in carbohydrate to cause your body to produce ketones. That's it. Everything else that we try and tack on to that definition introduces context that is unique to a group of people or an individual. Um, so for example, you talk with, with a, a long course triathlete or, or a, an ultra runner and you talk with one who's not using strategic carbohydrates and I'll show you somebody who's not getting anywhere near a podium. I mean, realistically that's true, but if you tested their blood glucose and their ketone levels throughout that entire race, you would find that individual was probably running pretty high ketone numbers the entire time, even right after consuming that carbohydrate bolus, right? right? It's the same kind of thing. If I go and I dose maybe six to 10 grams of dextrose powder in an intra-workout, you know, and dose it around one hour in the gym or one hour in jujitsu, um, it's done intentionally and targeted relative to like the heat and humidity. So I make some modifications, um, as I know, a lot of, you know, race strategists will make modifications for nutrients around elevation and humidity and temperature and, and the relative fitness level and all of that fun stuff of their clients. Um, there are just a lot of people who want to use specific numbers and reference ranges in defining ketogenesis. And I'll give you a good example. And this is one, you know, that cringe makes me cringe because I love what Bert 
Florida is doing. And it makes me super happy to watch these guys, you know, plant the flag and say, we're going to reverse type two diabetes. And, and my heart goes out to, to, to Steve and Sarah and, and all of the folks that have had the luxury of meeting at some point in time that work at Berta. When they were asked about seeing the declining ketone levels over the course of six months and then 12 months in their, their you know, pinnacle study that they put out fairly recently, you know, they, they categorized it by simply saying, well, people probably fall off the wagon or become a little less structured or strict in what they're doing. And, you know, I find myself saying, well, I've actually found, as we do with a lot of our clients, that as I've been eating this way for a long period of time, we actually get um, lower and lower blood ketone readings. Oh, so it's the it, same here. 100% <laughs> so, true. And so it begs yeah. this interesting question. Are we becoming super efficient in the way that we utilize fat so that the liver never gets those ketones? And at that point, are we officially ketogenic? I run about 0.4 all the time. And it really doesn't even matter what I eat. If I eat 150 grams of carbohydrate, I run about 0.4. I did a little experiment where I eat nothing but lard and salt. And it was disgusting, by the way. There is no nice way to dress up lard <laughs> and salt. No hot sauce, no anything, just lard and salt. And here's the reality. I got one measure of 0 0.5 and the rest were 0 0.4. There, there is sort of this ketone shaming thing that I'm seeing happen in the community and it breaks my brain because when, I, when there were further conversations had with Dr. Finney on one of his video Q&As that he did and he was asked about it, he said that those with higher ketone levels um, led to greater out, or to better, uh, better outcomes was the word. And I, I wanted to raise my hand, but of course, it, you know, virtual discussion is not exactly the place to do that. And ask that question to say, what do you mean by greater clinical outcomes or better outcomes? Are we talking about overall satiety and therefore less likelihood of recidivistic behavior? Are we talking about actual lowering of HbA1c? Like, like I, I, he's so careful with his words. In, you know, intentionally because he's a, you know, is a, you know, an MD PhD and should be. I just found myself saying that was a very catch all statement and it felt like maybe there was more to be teased out. And I would love to know what the clinical significance they're seeing when they, when they uh, divide into quartiles or, or, or stripe those individuals and look at those individuals and say, okay, what were the actual results of the naturally high ketone people than naturally moderate ketone people. And again, I'm using you know, descriptive know, terminology here or the naturally lower ketone people in terms of their overall outcomes. And then to follow those people for three or five years and see what the, what the, the significance here is, because I, I have to be honest. I I've worked with clients who have tested a number of them and some of them will run, you know, zero point, seven in the morning and 2.6 before they go to bed. So it depends on when you're testing. There is sort of an ebb and flow, which again makes sense because cortisol rises and lowers throughout the course of a day. Um, you know, testosterone rises and lowers throughout the course of the day. Estrogen ebbs and flows throughout the course of a day. Why would we not expect that ketone levels are going to move in relation to the amount of available glucose in circulation? 
And if the amount of available glucose in circulation goes up because cortisol as part of the wake cycle is actually raising, because this is a whole Don phenomenon thing that we see in type 1 diabetics, why would we not suspect that the time of day when somebody thinks to test blood ketones might indicate something? And what really bothers me is not that people want to test. I think people think that I'm just anti-everything, and I'm not. No. Here's what I've seen happen. I've seen people start eating actual sticks of butter. I've seen, I've seen people, like for real, I have seen people um, literally go to butcher shops and buy all of the fat that the butcher has trimmed off and eat the fat. Like they'll put it on top of like a ribeye so that they get, you know, uh, and so they start chasing these ketones because they feel inferior in some way because they, right. they only blow a one or they only, they only prick a 1.2 or somebody there's, you know, is a 3.7. And here's the dirty little secret. Beta hydroxybutyrate in circulation actually raises insulin levels. So if people genuinely, and a lot of these folks who were kind of ketone in that ketone shaming or in that ketone shame spiral, seem to think that insulin is inherently the, the, the culprit or the cause of obesity. I, I don't quite agree with that. Um, but if they want to go down that pathway and believe that, then you would want to argue for relatively lower ketone levels, not higher, because you're going to actually decrease the amount of basal insulin that you actually have in circulation at any point in time. So we have to consider that that human bioenergetics is a lot like playing whack-a-mole it's not like playing connect the dots every time that you think you have it figured out and you whack with with the mallet another one pops up over here because the body has this annoying habit of redundant pathways for redundant pathways because it just wants to do this thing called staying alive it's yeah. crazy the, the leaps and bounds that we go through or we go to to want to stay alive. I mean, even type 2 diabetes in and of itself can be viewed mechanistically as a survival mechanism to keep us from dying in the first place. Yeah. So there are just a lot of uh, poor definitions or personalized or you know pet peeve de or, or, or pet definitions that have been applied in way too broad a context within the ketogenic community to try and describe what ketosis is. And I really think the question is, are you producing any significant amount of ketone or not? Right. Um, that, that's, that's really it. And are you fueling effectively for the outcome that you want? And if you are, who in Hades cares? And I know that that's going to get me in trouble. I said it on the stage and I'll say it here too. I don't care. I genuinely well, we're on the same could team. not care what somebody's ketones are if it means that by getting them stronger and getting their cardiovascular health in, better, in a better place, that when they're 85 or when they're 90, they're going to be able to bend down and play with their grandchildren or their great-grandchildren, or they're going to be able to stay out of a retirement home for longer and stay in their own homes and their own places of familiarity. You know, and I do find myself saying, hey, I agree with a lot of the evidence seems to be out there that that ketogenic diets are inherently kind of neuroprotective with regard to things like Alzheimer's and dementia and neurodegenerative disorders. But I find myself asking the question, 
do we really know what the clinical levels are that are required or how frequently one has to be in or out of ketosis to actually elicit those benefits? And unfortunately, I just don't think that we do. I agree with you 110%. And there's this definition that keto, ketogenic diet is less than whatever number of carbohydrates, but my husband eats about 300 grams of carbohydrates or maybe in the even more, and he's naturally lean. He was the guy that Gary Tobbs was talking about in the, his talk about them and us. Like He can eat whatever he wants. I've tested his ketones after eating cheesecake and um, chips and salsa. And he had like, I don't know, 0.4 millimolar. And I was like, you know, it's not a number. It's, it's your body efficient at burning fat. And as long as you have a number shows up, then it is. And even if it doesn't like in the moment, you know, at some point in the day, if you actually show something, you know your body is producing ketones and your body's making fat. My, um, I had a client who had gone on a very, like a starvation diet and she was losing muscle mass. And I was like, you got to get your protein up. She's like, oh, but my ketones will go down. They're at 1.6. I'm like, you know, don't worry about that. You need muscle. <laughs> because yeah. for me, I, like I said earlier, before we got on, the number one reason people enter assisted living homes is lack of leg strength. They are not able to do daily activities and you need to be able to do that just like you had said earlier. So sorry, Tyler, go on. No, you're, you're totally fine. I, 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 you know, this is your show. You drive the boat. I just talk until you wave your hand at me. It's all good. <laughs> um, yeah, the, the one thing I wanted to add there too, and this is a little bit of a personal rant, so forgive me. You know, I've run across some folks, especially in sort of like this longevity community that really fear protein for a very different reason than ketone levels per se. They tend to fear it because of things like mTOR and all of this sort of stuff. But the challenge that we have is that most of the, the models predicating that fear come from rodents and taking something with a, with a metabolic rate of seven times that of a human and actually applying that and saying, Sorry, if you can hear the buzzing in the background, it's the guy ripping the deck off of my house, so I apologize. Um, but uh, you know, you can't take something that is metabolically radically different than in an in, you know than in a human and apply it. And one of the challenges is it is almost impossible to make a rodent ketogenic. You have to starve them of protein. You have to keep their fat at eighty or ninety percent fat in their food. Otherwise, their metabolisms are just so efficient and so high-strung, you can't really compare them effectively for things like longevity and the implications of protein mechanistics with regard to metabolism and, and muscle building and their effects on telomere length and all of the stuff that they're being used to look at right now. Do I think that overconsumption of protein has some potential deleterious effects there? Maybe. But I do think that it's more important to ask ourselves, where do we want to be at 80? Where do we want to be at 70? Where, would, where do we want to be at 90? You know, I saw a study that said, or, or an article that said, like, scientists believe that the first person that will live to be 135 has already been born, or whatever the, the thing was that I saw. I think it was 135. And I thought to myself, but man, like, what a... So maybe they start eating... 50 or 60 grams of protein and they're doing exercise and they're doing all of this stuff. And by the time that they're 70 or 75, they're basically decrepit and laid up in a bed and can't move or do anything. Was now instead of living to be 87 and passing away after 17 years of this, can you imagine 
a couple of things. The financial drain on the family that's going to happen because they're going to live for 57 or 60 years in a retirement home. Secondly, the amount of life that's going to pass that individual by because they don't have the ability to get up and go and be active. And, you know, when I brought this up one time, somebody said to me, um, yeah, but imagine how far science is going to come in developing the ability to synthesize muscle with medications. And I was like, oh my gosh, well, we could just eat and exercise. <laughs> like, you know, that, right. that, that to me is just like, there, there's a certain kind of white rabbit syndrome that happens there, right? Like one <laughs> yeah. makes you larger, the other one makes you smaller. And it's like, there is, you know, I don't want to take a pill or a potion or a powder to do a thing. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to fear protein and eat tons and tons of fat in order to live to be 120, if by the time I'm 75, I have to take a medication that causes me to synthesize new muscle spontaneously because I've become so sarcopenic or so cachexic that I can't actually do anything on my own. And I got to be honest, and this is a value statement on my part that I'll freely admit, I don't want to live if I'm laid up like that and can't do anything. Well, I will tell you, Tyler, I used to teach classes in assisted living homes, and the oldest lady who came to my class was 106. Wow. And uh, she would fall asleep during class, but she was still mobile. I mean, I used to think she made me nervous because I was concerned she was, had died in my class. <laughs> but, but she is still pretty mobile. And there were some ladies who were in their 80s and 90s and even like 100. The oldest guy I, did, I was a personal trainer for was 99. Mm -hmm. and he was a nutrition researcher. And I would ask him all kinds of questions because I was like, hey, He's 99. He was a nutrition researcher. He knows some things. <laughs> <laughs> he said the most, uh, the, I asked him what the best food was. And he said, the best food is an egg. An egg has the perfect nutrition. And although I think now I've changed my content, I think that steak is probably the perfect food, but an egg is <laughs> pretty close. And he was perfectly healthy, but he had outlived everybody. He had outlived all of his children and his wife. And he later, I think he lived to 103 when he passed away. But it might have been like, he's like, I'm out. Peace out, people. Yeah. <laughs> I'm done. <laughs> he was still doing karaoke every, you know, Tuesday coming to personal training Tuesdays and Thursdays. And But that's, you know, but, but that's, and you see these N equals ones and you're like, oh, well, we should model that. And unfortunately, it's like we were talking about in the presentation. If you want to be Lee Haney, you have to be Lee Haney, right? right. You know, you, right. unfortunately, I can't just take his lifestyle or exactly what Gary was talking about with the us versus them kind right. of a conversation. You can't just adopt everything that somebody says and be like, well, this is going to make me live to be 103. But you can look at those things and then look at other people who have lived a similarly right. long life and really investigate how they're eating and what they're eating and try and kind of figure it out. The challenge is as people get older, they tend to naturally inherently eat less protein. So when you inquire of them from like from frequency recollections from 20 and 30 and 40 years ago, they tend to limit their food intake based on their current way that they intake food. And so if food frequency questionnaires are inherently untrustworthy over the course of a three-month or a six-month window, can you imagine what they are in a 30- or 60-year window in terms of inaccuracy? Mm -hmm. Not to mention that a lot of those folks were smoking a pack and a half of Pall Mall cigarettes a right. day and you know chasing it down with a scotch on the rocks. I mean, we just the things we didn't know we didn't know is, right. is the, the intriguing aspect of that. This is the end of Section 1, and I hope 
hope you join us next week for section two of Tyler's interview. If you want to know more about how to structure your training as an endurance athlete to be a keto adapted or a fat adapted endurance athlete, please join me at ketoendurance.co slash fit and you can sign up for a free webinar to tell you all about it. Thanks for listening and have a great day.